in the Buddha's uh, Noble Eightfold Path, which is his uh, prescription for realizing uh, the end of suffering. There are three trainings. And the first is the purification of our intention when we're speaking and acting, which allows us to enjoy the happiness of living in harmony. And the second training is a purification of our mind. And this is accomplished through the development of, of uh, mindfulness on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And when, and to the extent that the mindfulness is continuous, the defilements or the torments of the mind are subdued temporarily out of the mind. The mind is purified of them. And this gives us a subjective sense or feeling of tranquility. The mind feels calm when it's not tormented. But because conditions are always changing, the Buddha offered a third training, which is both more powerful and more subtle. And it is the training in the purification of understanding. And this is through the practice of Vipassana, where we develop insightful understanding into the nature of things. Insightful understanding into the way it is in life. Insightful understanding into the Dharma. And this is the key to the doorway to peace. This shift in understanding is more than what we can acquire from reading or speaking to others about their experience and their understanding. We can question the most articulate philosophers or yogis or enlightened beings as much as we want, learn everything they have to say. But to us, it is still just information. Just hearing it, we may believe it, or we may have faith in it, but it doesn't come from within our own experience. And so it's not really personally owned. And therefore it does not have the transformative effect that insight has. Insight by its very definition has that transformative effect on our understanding. And neither is our own reflective, ruminating, uh, reasoning, logic, adequate to the task of purifying our understanding of wrong or unskillful views. So it really is the task of insight or the task of our Vipassana practice 
to use what we've learned and to apply it intelligently in practice in order to see things in such a way as to understand them so that they do not cause suffering. And that, as I've mentioned before, is the definition of skillful or wise or right, right view, right understanding. Our teacher, Saito Upandita, in Burma, often talks about the multiple layers of delusion that smother the mind. And we know <laughs> there are multiple layers of delusion. The first being, are you aware of this moment or not? And, and, and that's a hard one to get free of consistently. And then once we are kind of aware of the present moment, do we understand it correctly? Even if we're aware this is what's going on, do we understand it in a way that doesn't cause more suffering? And there are subtler layers of misunderstanding beyond that. And so it takes multiple degrees of insight or multiple experiences of insight to overcome, uproot, to see through these multiple layers of delusion. There is a natural progression of understanding that emerges from the continuity of awareness when used to look at experience and to understand it skillfully. There is no single dramatic spotlight on the mind that does it. We do a lot of work in preparing for glimpses, little insights, little shifts of understanding. And sometimes they accumulate to a dramatic something like a breakthrough understanding. But a lot of times it's just a slow uh, erosion of wrong view and a growing appreciation and understanding and acceptance, acknowledgement of the right view or skillful view. So when the Buddha was asked, why are people, why are some people healthy and some people sickly? Why do some people live long, long life, and some people pass away very young. Why are some people really wise and some people not so? And when the Buddha spoke about karma, he pointed to the conditions that give rise to wisdom in the mind. And he said that for one who is wise, they have spent a lot of time asking questions. They've inquired, they've looked at, they've asked questions about the nature of experience, the nature of reality, how things are put together. And we can see that's not so, that's not so difficult to understand. If you ask a lot of questions, you're going to get a lot of answers, and you still have to find out whether they're right or not. 
On the other hand, if you just accept everything as it is, and you don't really look too close, and you don't look below the surface, and you don't inquire too much, you may not have a very sophisticated understanding of things. The Buddha's answer gives us a clue as to how to practice skillfully. Because it will take interest and curiosity to ask the questions of ourself, of our practice, of our experience, in order to arrive at a sophisticated, refined, skillful understanding. And it also takes courage to inquire and investigate in such a way that let the chips fall where they may, this is what I'm going to believe. If we are committed to the truth, and the Dharma is also called the truth, the way things are, if we are committed to discovering the truth, the truth is the truth. Things are the way they are. And if that's what we're seeking, well, we have to accept that's the way it is. So it requires a, a practice like this and the acquisition of skillful knowledge, purification of understanding, requires an active observation and questioning of everything we see, hear, feel, think, believe. But not to the point of just spinning ourselves out in thinking and agitation and restlessness and doubt. And those are the challenges, really. Or those are the hindrances that arise when we start to investigate. In the development of all of the wholesome qualities of mind, there are seven, called the seven factors of awakening, that are kind of the primary factors for this kind of growing knowledge. And in that, there are three energizing factors, three tranquilizing factors, and mindfulness is the seventh, which is the balancing factor. Of the energizing factors, one of them is, of course, energy. A second is joy or delight, sometimes even just curiosity. And the third energizing factor is called investigation of the Dhamma. Because when we investigate, we are looking with interest and curiosity and a very refined, how is this? And it, it's very energizing uh, to the mind. So tonight I want to speak about this quality of investigation of the Dharma. Why? Why it's necessary? How to do it? What the benefit is? What the dangers of uh, unskillful investigation are? Maybe the first place to start in our investigation of practice, the Dharma, uh, meditation, is what the Buddha has to say about it. Because 
if we don't know what the Buddha had to say about the Dharma, liberation, bondage, etc., we're just shooting in the dark. We're just kind of wandering around, taking anybody's word for anything and, and either believing it or not, depending on our own level of faith in them. But the Buddha was very clear in acknowledging that his teaching was all about suffering and the end of suffering. And when asked speculative, philosophical, or metaphysical questions about the nature of the universe and enlightened beings and all kinds of interesting questions to have answered, he wouldn't answer them because he said, even if you knew the answers to it, it doesn't do anything to address your suffering and the end of suffering. It's just a belief. So what? You're still suffering. And the answer to that question doesn't change that. Doesn't affect it. Doesn't support your freeing your mind from wrong understanding. So it's interesting even to begin there. And then to just kind of review the books on our bedside table. And just what are those books guiding us to do? What is all that information we're reading and acquiring and imbibing and putting into our mind? Is it helpful? Is it clarifying? Is it inspiring? Is it inspiring us in the right thing? It's a good place to look. It's a good place to begin the inquiry of what are we doing with our life? What are we doing with our practice? Where do we think we're going? What actually supports it? And what is just, well, to use Trungpa's famous line, what is just spiritual materialism? Acquiring the trappings of spiritual life for no benefit. We have to look, we have to ask that question because we are living at a time in a, in a society where there's just a, a profusion, a richness, an abundance, an overabundance of spiritual stuff. <laughs> and we can acquire a lot of it to no useful purpose. So it's always good to go back to the Buddha and check it out. What do you have to say? What's, what's worth putting your efforts into? What is the goal? What, what is it we're trying to do with our spiritual practice? Sayadaw Utejaniya, in his understanding of Buddha's instruction and the way he teaches, he says, the purpose of practice is to grow in wisdom. The purpose of practice is to grow in wisdom. Because it is not you who removes the defilements. It is wisdom that does that job. So if we really want to understand things clearly, if we want to understand things without the contamination of any form of greed, hatred, delusion, we have to remove the defilements. It is wisdom that removes the defilements. Practices for the development of wisdom. Along the way, and I don't know if Kamala's going to speak about this retreat or not, but along the way on this journey of practice, acquiring 
wisdom and upper defilements, there are just tremendous benefits. There's just a growing ease in our life, a growing sense of well-being. There's all sorts of spiritual goodies, delights, calm, confident, tranquil, equanimous, clarity. There's just a lot of, well, what we call scenic turnouts on the route. <laughs> you know, and if you pull off to this turnout and you get kind of fascinated with the view, you never make it to the goal. You never make, you never finish a journey. And so, even though they are bound to come, they're not the goal. It takes awareness, mindfulness, to overcome and uproot ignorance, to become aware of the present moment. But it takes wisdom to overcome delusion. The clearly uh, understanding correctly or skillfully the way things are once awareness has brought them into view. So tonight I want to speak about investigating three arenas of experience. And the first of these is investigating the object or the moment-to-moment -moment experiences that we have. The second is investigating practice. How's it going? How are we doing it? How's it going? And the third is to investigate our understanding. How is it that we understand the present moment? And how do we know if it's skillful or not? So the first is investigating the object or our moment-to-moment -moment experience. We have our culture, our civilization, has perfected the study of the scientific method. And we've really gotten skillful at looking at things, the world out there, the natural world, the mineral world, the, you know, the cosmos, if you will, looking at it, observing it, and coming to understand it in a way that we can use that knowledge to make our lives better. And the scientific principles are well known to us. How to, how to look and, and why to believe and when to believe what it is you observe. But in this practice, we're not looking outside. We're looking inside. How the trees do their things, how the weather does its thing, how the earth moves around the sun, and how the other planets move around in the solar system, or how the, the, the Big Bang is affecting you know, sunspots and the weather in the Midwest now, uh, really isn't going to liberate the mind at all. So that's a whole field of knowledge which, well, while interesting and useful for our lives, is not spiritual practice. Spiritual practice and the, the growing understanding of how not to suffer is from studying our body and mind, using the same care and precision of the scientific method, but in observing the experience of this body and this mind. The Buddha 
looked at this whole package that we call me, and he found that there are these five experiences that we all accumulate. There are experiences of the body and experiences of the mind. And in the experiences of the mind, there are four different kinds of experiences. There are the experiences of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, you know, physical, mental things. There's the experience of perception. How do we see things? How do we understand the things that we see? There is the intentions, the, the, the qualities of heart and mind, the emotions that we have in relation to everything about our life. And then there is the, the fact of, uh, and the, the function of just knowing that it's all happening. These five experiences, the body and these four mental experiences are called the five aggregates because there are just an infinite number and variety of experiences that accumulate in each of these five areas of our life. So when we look at the body, most of us see size, shape, texture, color, And that's what we see in the mirror. And that's what we see in each other. But when we close our eyes and we start to feel the body with the mind, now we're investigating, as a scientist would, what is actually going on here? Well, all we have is an anatomical map and some book, to, unless you're a doctor and have done you know, autopsies or something. Most of us just have picture in a book, you know, and that's what we think is going on there. And we have an anatomical map. But when we start mapping out the experience of the body, we don't find hand, foot, liver, lungs, nerves. We don't find that stuff. We find hardness, softness, throbbing, pulsing, aching, tingling, <laughs> heat, cold. That is the direct and immediate knowledge we have of the body. It's hard to make the transition from our Western scientific knowledge about the body to our intuitive, insightful experience of the body, our own deeply personal experience of the body. And so much of how we understand the body is influenced by our Western scientific knowledge and medical knowledge of that. It's helpful, it's useful, it's beneficial, but it's not going to free you from attachment to and rightly understanding the nature of this body. It's just not. So when we look at the mind, now we've got this soundboard of the mind. You know, in the Buddha's picture of the mind, uh, he doesn't bother to kind of describe, you know, where it is and what it looks like, but it's something like a soundboard, you know, at a concert. You know, you got a soundboard with all these levers. There's 52 levers in the mind, the Buddha said, and they're in constant flux. You can move them in any combination you want, and it will reveal a different state of mind. It's up to us to explore this soundboard of the mind to discover for ourselves. 
How much energy there is or isn't. How much faith there is or isn't. How much mindfulness there is or isn't. How much tranquility, concentration, joy, fear, anxiety, and every other mental experience you've had. It takes a long time. It takes, it takes quite a long time to, to acquire our own language, our own knowledge of the range of mental potential. It just takes, we just have to bear with it. We just have to accumulate. You know, you could walk around these five acres of this retreat center cataloging the different kinds of trees and plants and get it done long before you'd ever know all the factors of the mind. And it wouldn't be easy either. So we need patience. But we also need to be persevering because this is where the mind suffers because of not understanding correctly these qualities of the mind. Perception or recognizing phenomena is a, is a natural capacity of the mind. You know, you go through the breakfast line, you get down to the end and you see the bananas. And there's, there's a few there, at the beginning of the line anyway. And you look at those bananas and you don't have to pause. You don't have to really figure out to know which ones are ripe and which ones aren't or which ones you prefer and which ones you don't. The mind will make that decision for you, right? You don't have to think about it. It just goes, that one. You know, that one's not too green, not too many black spots. It's just the one I want. And we go there. That function of the mind to look at two similar things, compare and contrast, evaluate, and make a choice is a natural activity of mind. We don't make it happen. It just, it is going to happen. We can't stop it from happening. And that's not the purpose of practice, to stop it from happening. But what happens is, we see which one we prefer. And if we reach for it, but somebody else gets it first, then we got a problem. <laughs> not because we didn't accurately perceive which one is ripest, but because we're attached to that perception. That's where, the, that's where the suffering comes from. Deciding which one's ripest, that's not suffering. Not being able to get the one that you think is ripest, that's the suffering. Now, what we do with bananas is what we do with our behavior, our thoughts, our feelings, each other, other people, everything. The mind is doing that. Is it any wonder we, we, we look at our experience today in practice and judge it relentlessly as not good enough, not what I expect, not what I want? It's, it's not you doing anything. This is the mind doing it by itself. You can't stop the mind from doing it. What we have to watch for is that we don't get attached to what the mind shows us. The mind is going to show you, this experience is more pleasant than that one. Don't get attached to it. This one is more clear than that one. Don't get attached to that either. This one is more loving than that one. Don't get attached to that either. Because, as we can see, things change of their own nature. 
there is going to be a, an ongoing evaluation of how is it? Which one is, which one is best? Which one is preferable? We have the whole evolution of human humanity to thank for this capacity to know which banana is ripe, which person is right for us, which job, which behavior, which everything is evolutionarily conditioned. So we're not going to stop that. We're not going to try to reverse that. We're not trying to put that on hold. We need that capacity in order to make wise decisions in our life. But we need the wisdom of non-attachment to make those decisions. So this is a, a rich, rich, rich area of our experience to pay attention to and to look into. The danger or the limitation or the challenge is so much of our life, of our body and mind, is so familiar, it's boring. It's so familiar, it's so habitual, it's so predictable, it's so overburdensome. It's like we don't really want to look. You know, as I've asked before, how many times do you brush your teeth in a lifetime? How many times do you go to the toilet? How many showers do you take in a lifetime? How many meals do you eat? How many times do you get dressed? How many times do you tie, tie your shoes? You know, how many times can you pay attention to all of these repetitive activities and still see it as if for the first time so that you really know what that experience is? That's our challenge. Doing very familiar things. And here on retreat, there's nothing exciting ever happen except strawberry shortcake on the 4th of July. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, it's all pretty routine. And so we have the challenge of arousing this investigative quality of mind. What is really going on when we go through that lunch line? What is really going on when you go to the toilet? You know, Saito Uteshini is, I think I mentioned this in one of the groups, Saito Uteshini is teacher, Shweyuman Saito. This was one of his favorite questions. When you go to the toilet, what happens first? If you're not interested to answer that question accurately from your own observation and experience, that's not good enough. Really, that's what it takes. That kind of interest in looking at the most ordinary, repetitive, mundane, because as Will Rogers, that famous philosopher, <laughs> said, it isn't what we don't know that gives us trouble. It is what we know that just ain't so. <laughs> you know, it's not what we know about all this. It's what we think we know that isn't really that way. And so this is why we look at the most ordinary uh, experience. In this unfolding of the five aggregates. In this unfolding of this body and mind, it is such a vast, intricate, infinite web of experience that it creates, it spins this illusion that there really is someone here to whom it is all happening. And this is one of the greatest illusions that we live with. There's my body and my mind to whom this is all happening. 
it takes extraordinary continuity of awareness and extremely insightful understanding of the way it is to see through that smokescreen. But that's the direction we're headed. And it just takes a kind of a persistent, uh, persevering, staying present with what our actual experience is, not the story we're telling ourselves about this experience. Because, as you know, the story is endless. It's repetitive. Everything that ever happens to us gets perceived and woven into the story of my life when there isn't one. It isn't my anything. It's just the unfolding of causes and effects giving rise to experience. But when we pick it up with this wrong view and weave it into the story of my life, it's extremely tenacious in, in staying in there. And it's hard to get out. So I encourage you to not dismiss or minimize the importance of paying attention to the most insignificant events during your day. It's not that you're going to have some dramatic, uh, blinding insight while you brush your teeth. But there, there is this slow undermining of wrong understanding when we do that. So that's investigating our moment-to-moment -moment experience. We also need to investigate our practice. How is it going? What are we doing? There are many... Um, there are many, I was going to call them one-liners, but there are many right views about practice that we lay out over the course of a retreat. It's up to each one of us to investigate them. One thing that we've told you, in every moment there's something being known. Is that true? Is that true? Have you confirmed it for yourself? Well, don't believe us just because we said it. You know, that like the Buddha said, don't believe it just because somebody tells you it. You have to check it out for yourself. Is that true? And then, if it is true, what's being known? And this is the place of practice. This is the place of investigation and practice. Okay, assuming that in every moment something is being known, what? What is being known? This is a way to investigate your practice. And I would always, uh, I, I always encourage you to give yourself no more than one word to answer the question. What is being known? If you start giving yourself two words or a phrase, you're going to start telling yourself a story about what's being known. And then you've, you, you're into the narrative again. There's a big difference between narrating your life and noting moment-to-moment -moment experience. Huge difference. Narrating your life weaves everything together into a me. Noting each moment-to-moment -moment experience is a distinct, unique phenomena arising due to its own causes and conditions. It doesn't have anything to do with you. 
That's how we undermine the tenacious misbelief in this uh, sense of self. Another thing that we encourage is to ask yourself the question, or to monitor, is there awareness in this moment? Am I aware or am I thinking about this experience? Am I aware of it or am I thinking about it? Someone today in a group or individually, I can't remember what, said that she always asks herself, can I find a way of being with this at ease? Can I find an easeful way of being with this? It's the same, it's her way of asking the question, is there awareness here? Another one said, uh, I ask, what is the mind doing now? Just the very asking of the question is a checking on your practice. If you can remember to ask the question, what's the mind doing now? Is there awareness here now? Is there a way to be at ease with this experience? All of those bring you immediately to the present moment and your relationship to it. Do you know what's going on and how, do you, how are you relating to it? That is mindful awareness. So it's important that we investigate how we are practicing, whether there is awareness present. And you can find your own way. You know, I talked about this morning, I talked about the function of mindfulness being remembering. Well, each one of us has our own way of jogging our remembering, asking a certain question or feeling something in the body and the mind. Recognize what your own way of <coughs> remembering is, and then develop it. Another way or another thing to check in your practice we say, it really doesn't matter what you're aware of. Anything is okay. Is that true? It is? Do you believe that? It doesn't matter what you're aware of. Do you still have preferences? Would you rather sit in the hall or sit outside? Is there a difference? Is there something, is there something, some real reason to prefer one over the other? Do you prefer walking to sitting? Do you prefer a quiet hall to a noisy hall? Ouch. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't take long to find your, you know, the limits of your non-preferring non mind. You know, it's pretty clear. We got preferences. It's okay. Nevertheless, it really doesn't matter which of those experiences you're aware of, because any moment that, that there is awareness, is a moment without defilements in the mind. That's what we're going for. We're going for minimizing the unskillful mental states, maximizing the skillful states. And when mindfulness is present or awareness is present, all of the wholesome qualities of mind are nearby. But when defile, any defilement is there, none of them are. So then we check, you know, every moment something's being known, now we know what. Is there awareness present? Yes or no. Uh, do we have a preference for what we're noticing? Hopefully not. Then, what's your attitude towards this experience? 
another way of investigating your practice. We're going along, we're practicing. How are you relating to what you're knowing? You're being present. You're moment to moment, you're with it. How are you relating to it? Do you have an attitude towards it? Do you have a judgment of it? Is there some attitude in your mind that it shouldn't be happening? Or a belief in your mind it shouldn't be happening? Or you prefer something else to happen? Asking yourself the question, how is the mind relating to this experience? Will reveal a lot. It's as if asking, is there a defilement present? If you did nothing but ask, is there a defilement present in the mind? You would really learn a lot. It would be a constant or an ongoing investigation of your practice. There are the I was listening to a listening to a talk by Randy Pausch, I guess, called The Last Lecture, in which he's talking about basically his life. He's talking about the brick walls that we meet in life. You know, there are hard brick walls like, well, in meditation practice, it's likes and dislikes. You know, what you like, what you dislike leads to, you know, indulgence and frustration, disappointment. But there are also the soft brick walls. Those are the hard brick walls. The soft brick walls are those meditative experiences you've been looking for. They come, they're soft, they're pleasant, they're subtle, they're enjoyable, and they're a brick wall. And you can't get through them until you recognize them, until you make them the object of your awareness to be known, to be recognized, and to check out how you're relating to them. Investigating the nature of the defilements is essential. Being willing to, and I mentioned this uh, yesterday, or the day before yesterday, when we recognize that defilement has arisen in the mind, our tendency, as we know, is to just get rid of it. First to judge ourselves, and then to try to get rid of it quickly. And that is just the wrong thing to do. Because it is through understanding the defilements that we overcome them, that we uproot them. It is understanding, as said, it is understanding, it is wisdom that removes the defilements, not you. And so what is it we need to know about these defilements? We need to recognize them when they arise. We need to recognize their own uniqueness, their own flavor. We need to recognize the causes and conditions that give rise to them. We need to recognize when and how they disappear from the mind. Because they do. Remember that sloth and torpor you had today? Or that frustration you had earlier today? Or that disappointment? Or that anxiety? Where is it? Where is it now? Do you know how it left the mind? It's important to pay that, that careful attention so that you see how it arises, what it feels like when it's there, and how it disappears. Knowing what is present in the mind, knowing what is not present in the mind, the Buddha said, is important. Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, great Tibetan teacher of the last century, said, simply by turning on the light, you can instantly remove the darkness. Likewise, even a rather simple analysis of your clinging 
and afflictive emotions can make them collapse. By suppression, we may temporarily subdue our afflictive emotions, but it is only an investigation of their true nature that will completely eradicate them. We can put them down, we can put them aside, but it's only when we investigate their nature through direct observation that we're going to be able to completely eradicate them, uproot them from the mind. So we investigate our moment-to-moment experience, we investigate our practice, looking particularly for how we're practicing, what we're noticing in the practice, and particularly for any agendas, any projects, any tasks that we set ourselves, or that attach themselves to our effort. And I put out a couple of, a couple of sheets of paper, you know, just identifying a number of ways that we hold our practice or conceive our practice as projects or agendas or trying to accomplish something, and they all are extra baggage. We really don't need to have that burdensome misunderstanding of our practice. It really is, you know, as I've mentioned several times, it really is important to try to keep your practice really, really simple. And even then, it's extraordinarily difficult. If you let it proliferate in its complexity, it becomes totally unmanageable. So it really is important to to have the bare understanding of awareness leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to wisdom, wisdom frees the mind. Keep it that simple. And third, the third arena of investigation is to investigate our understanding. How is it that we understand this experience? From the gross defilements to the subtler delusions, from emotional reactivity to beliefs and assumptions, notice what story are you telling yourself about this experience? Because it is in the story we tell ourselves about this experience where we find misunderstanding, misbeliefs, wrong view. And there are just so many subtle ways that we tell ourselves a story about the experience rather than just observe and be with it as a direct and immediate experience. just observing this experience or are we elaborating a justification are we elaborating a strategy are we elaborating a worldview are we elaborating a personal deficiency all of that is extra burdensome wrong view can we just be with this knowing This is a momentarily arisen appearance of phenomena due to causes and conditions almost exclusively out of our control that is just being known by the mind. That's a very limited understanding 
but it's a liberating understanding. And more than that, entangles a sense of self in the experience. Can we see this moment's experience for what it is without attributing anything, any other value to it? It's just this. It's just this sensation. It's just this thought. It's just this emotion. It's just whatever it is. Without making a story about me out of it. A story about my body out of it. A story about my past out of it. A story about my future out of it. Can we just see it for what it is? A naturally occurring phenomena due to causes and conditions that aren't personal. The knowledge of Vipassana is really the development of the three insights, or insight into the three, what are called the universal characteristics. Somebody was mentioning today, and it's, it's so common, uh, I'll mention it. Isn't it amazing? You sit down, you have some experience, it can be pleasant or unpleasant. And along with it comes this, it's something like a belief, although if somebody said, do you really believe that, you'd say, of course not. But it feels true. That when you're, when you're caught in you know, struggling with some defilement, the feeling is, this is the way it's gonna be forever. Isn't that right? It just, I mean, it just feels that way. We know that's not true, but it feels that way. Or, or on the more enjoyable side, you have a good sitting. You come in, the body, no pain in the body, it's light, it's transparent, the mind is clear, you know, you feel confident, and it's just kind of like effortless, and you think, this is the way it's gonna be the rest of the retreat. <laughs> I mean, it's like we get seduced every time by this, what? It's not a belief. I mean, we, we, we really don't believe it. But it's not even an assumption. It's not an assumption. It's a what? Hallucination. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wrong belief. It is a, well, it's just a distortion of reality. And yet we, we chew on it endlessly. What is it going to take for us to never get caught by that? misbelief again. That's your practice. That's your practice. It's like, you don't have to deny that the experience is happening. The experience is happening. You know, there is those pleasant, enjoyable experiences. There are those defilements. They arise. But none of them last. It's like, how can we, how can we stay so in touch with that understanding that we'll never forget. The only way, the only way is to see that in every moment. Every moment you have to see that. It doesn't last. Because 
the knowledge that belief, if it's just a belief, it'll change with the next experience. Beliefs are, are not, not substantial enough. We really have to see it so clearly, so consistently, so repetitively, so deeply, if you will, that the tendency to fall into that or to get seduced by that wrong, unskillful view is uprooted from the mind. It can be uprooted from the mind. It can be uprooted from the mind, that tendency. But that's the only insurance we have that we won't get caught in it again. It's to uproot it. And it can be done. The other, the other uh, insights to be investigated, to be understood through investigation. Did you ever have a pleasant experience and think, oh, this is the way it should be? Or have an unpleasant experience and think, oh, this shouldn't be happening? It's like every time, every time we think pleasant is right, unpleasant is wrong. And we believe, I mean, we don't really believe that, but it feels like it's true, but it's not. And so we fall for it every time that the mind throws this up as a possible explanation or a possible conclusion or a possible view of this experience. Pleasant is good, unpleasant is bad. Who could disagree with that? Those who are wise don't agree with that because it's not true. And what is it going to take, again, to see through that illusion, to see through that hallucination, to see through that mistaken belief every time that it appears? It's, 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 a, it's a level of continuity. It's a level of clarity. It's a level of let the chips fall where they may. I'm going to acknowledge the truth as I see it. but it can be uprooted from the mind. And the other, the third, the third one, maybe even more tenacious, is all these experiences that happen, they happen to me. It's all about me. <laughs> that one's really true, because it's not about anybody else. These experiences are about me. They're not about you, they're about me. And that mistaken belief is so tenacious, it is so embedded, it is so, as the Buddha said, it has most misled all of humankind forever. It is the mistaken belief. Insight is more powerful than that, though. Here we're practicing to see things as they truly are. <coughs> Mindfulness doesn't lie. And it won't allow you to deceive yourself once, once there's a momentum of mindfulness. You cannot deceive yourself. You cannot believe, you will not believe these three wrong views when mindfulness is strong and insight is developed. That's why it's so important to develop the continuity of awareness and to maintain it. Because to the extent that it's developed and maintained, those views cannot Cannot, cannot stay embedded in the mind. They can't. Mindfulness sees through them. 
mindful, or I should say insight, based on the continuity of mindfulness, sees through those wrong views. And this is how we investigate the truth. We investigate the Dharma. And we discover the truth. The purpose of practicing is to grow in wisdom, Sayadaw Tejaniya says. Growth in wisdom can only happen once we're able to recognize, understand, and transcend the defilements. In order to test your limits and to grow, you have to give yourself the opportunity to face the defilements. Without facing life's challenges, your mind will remain forever weak. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words come to an end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.